0: Get ready for adventure, Islands of it, Man, from the studios to Volcano
1: Bay, this is the Universal Joint, a podcast devoted to all things Universal, with your host, Jim Hill and Dustin Fuse.
0: Welcome to the Universal Joint podcast. I'm entertainment writer Jim Hill, we'll be joined shortly by my co-host, Dustin Fuse. He's out back parking the car
1: you joking me? $25? Can I at least pay with Canadian Tire money? Uh,
0: well, okay, that brings us to our first story coming out of the Universal Orlando Resort this week, and... That's on the heels of the Walt Disney World Resort's October 16th decision to raise the price of parking at all of its theme parks from $22 to $25.
1: This is crazy. So we've talked about this a number of times. So mm. the mouse just did this eight months ago mm-hmm. on February 11th. Within the last this year, mm-hmm. this calendar year, Disney World raised the price of parking at our its Florida theme parks from $20 to $22.
0: Which makes this the second price
1: increase of the year. And let's not forget that back on the 21st of March this year, the Walt Disney World Resort also began charging people who were staying at their on-site hotels for overnight parking. So this has been a huge thing within the community, and especially people who are trying to get down for a vacation. Mm -hmm. When you're looking at your Excel spreadsheet and making sure that you have enough money to buy things, from food to anything like, uh, you know, just tickets to get in, Now, all of a sudden, you have this extra cost. When it was announced, it was people staying at the deluxe resorts. Mm. So at the Polynesian, the Grand Flow Contemporary, that kind of thing. You were paying $24 a night. And guests who were staying at the moderate levels like Port Orleans, Coronado Springs, they were paying $19 a night. And then the people who were down at the value Resort, so All Stars, Pop Century, Art of Animation... That was $13 a night just to park your vehicle.
0: You're right. There was a lot of grousing online about Disney doing this. But if you look at this from the Universal Orlando Resort side of the fence, they've, they've been charging guests who stay there on-site at their hotels for parking for years now. So this is kind of that very
1: rare instance where Disney is following Universal's lead, right? Absolutely. And when we were talking about it, and when it— the conversation came up when they announced that there was going to be this this new charge. Everyone was making this big kerfuffle out in the world. And Universal was over on the far side being like, yeah, we've been doing this. It's OK. You know, it's kind of just been in our revenue stream. So when we were talking about what we were going to be bringing up on today's podcast, there was something that was weird because Universal Parks and Resorts Actually, decided to follow Disney's lead and raise the price of their parking at Florida theme parks from 22 to 25 a day.
0: What makes me a little crazy about this is back in February, when Disney raised the price of its parking for its Florida parks, Universal then waited three and a half weeks before they then finally decided to match Disney's price jump, go from 20 to 22. This time around, it was a whole six days, Dustin, before they they then jumped, you know, the price of parking at Universal theme parks from $22 to $25.
1: But you can get away with this kind of stuff when you're talking about things like Halloween Horror Nights where crowds are just literally pouring into Universal Orlando Resorts. Now, speaking of which, did you see that they just added a
0: 37th night to the run of the 2018 edition of Halloween Horror Nights? That night, which I guess is it, what Tuesday, October thirtieth, was supposedly added due to popular demand, and and given that Universal Land has already extended the run of Halloween Horror Nights two thousand eighteen by by two nights, that those were back in September, weren't they? Yeah, that's really saying something, isn't
1: it? It is, but it isn't. We're looking at a an event that has. Being completely sold out. Mm-hmm. Like it's when it sold out on the, what was it, October 12th and 14th, mm-hmm. the more that Universal was putting into Halloween Horror Nights, it's all about creating more capacity. And we've talked about this from the Disney mentality for years mm-hmm. with the number of attractions that are open during the holiday periods. They're February and March, you know, before spring break, that's one thing, but they need to have all of these attractions, activities, events going on. And this came up a while ago when when all these new uh parking structures started to to go up because it's yeah, you you need parking for this time. So with Halloween horror nights adding another night, which is now record-breaking, it's beyond crazy when you're looking at the fact that they start so early it's hot
0: anybody who's going to Orlando knows that it's hot again I got to talk with Mike Aiello out ahead of the opening of the 2018 edition of Halloween Horror Nights and he talked about how very late in the game they came to him and said how would you guys feel about doing a 10th house and it was one of these things where you know they had already been hard at work on the first nine houses but it's like, okay, let's get a 10th house in here. And when you consider from a capacity point of view, the fact that, you know, you've had two nights just in the past week sell out, You've had, already you've added two nights to the run of the show. You've now added this, and it's a Tuesday, you know, and anybody yeah. who, you know, yes, it's the Tuesday before Halloween, but still it's Tuesday, middle of the week. Not not an easy night for people to make time to go to, to an event like Halloween Horror Nights, but the demand is there now. And... I think to your credit, you were the guy who pointed out that when you look at the fact that they just held Rock the Universe back in September last month, you know the, the the first real weekend of September, and then the what the Monday, the Tuesday after that event, they announced that Rock the Universe now is coming back in 2019 in in February, first weekend of February. It doesn't take a genius to realize, okay, so if you move that out of The schedule, that then allows Universal to then begin holding Halloween Horror Night all the earlier, to bump it out to that that first or second
1: weekend of September. And when we're looking at Halloween Horror Nights 2019... 56 days before Halloween? That's perfectly fine to think about that, but that does seem very early to me. I get what you're saying, but
0: Mickey's not so scary. The very first hard ticket party for this Halloween event at Disney this year was held on August 17th. That's 75 full days before Halloween. So if Universal has started its event 56 days ahead of Halloween I'm I'm willing to cut them a little bit of a slack.
1: Oh absolutely. And our big thing with with these types of events are whatever draws the crowds. Whatever causes people to book that trip to go down to Disney and Universal to see the amazing creative minds at work. That's what we want. And speaking of things that were pretty uh creative In making people want to go down to Universal. Did you see the press release that Universal sent out on the 18th of October uh, saying that they have just sold their 20 millionth Butterbeer?
0: Wow. And when you consider just in the past year or so, we've had the hot Butterbeer available and they began serving that hard-packed butterbeer making uh, ice cream, making that
1: available. Butter beer is crazy. So when we're looking at butterbeer, there are, what, six different types of butterbeer. So with the demand, mm-hmm. there's a lot of things that go into that experience. When people are going in, they, they really want to have butterbeer. But here's the thing. Butterbeer was originally the mainstay of Harry Potter. There wasn't all these different uh, variations. So did a little bit of calculations, just putting, you know, two and two together. So if we assume that all of those Butterbeers were sold at Universal Orlando and the two different sides of, of Harry Potter, the Wizarding World of Harry Potter with Hogsmeade and Diagon Alley, and it doesn't include the butter beers sold at any of the other Wizarding worlds, so the one in Universal Studios Japan in July of 2014... And then the one in Hollywood, and uh, which came online April of 2016, that means that 3,044 days have passed since the original Wizarding World of Harry Potter opened to the day that they released that 20 million were sold. So if you divide 20 million butter beers by 3,044 days, that means that on average, the Universal Orlando Resorts actually sells. 6570 glasses of butterbeer a day oh dear lord i do want to
0: point out that when butterbeer was first became available in the wizarding world as you said back in june of 2010 you could buy a, a mug of the cold version for just $2.99 whereas the frozen butterbeer back then i think there was a dollar difference i, I want to say it was 3.99 Whereas nowadays, I mean, it's six ninety nine a glass, so we've basically seen a doubling of price.
1: Absolutely, and then when you're looking at the additional add ons, because the way that theme parks work is that it's all about the the extra revenue streams, mm-hmm. and one of the the biggest ones that people have have started to play with are the souvenir steins, mm-hmm. which you know. Eleven dollars for the cold and twelve dollars for the frozen. Now it's
0: interesting you bring up the price point and, and especially that price jump for the steins of that sort of thing because I I want to share a story I heard back in, in fall of two thousand ten. The Wizarding World of Harry Potter has basically been open for five or six months at this point, and this is when Comcast, which announced that it was going to go after a majority share in NBC Universal, they started doing that December of two thousand nine as you know there's, there's a lengthy discovery process and um so here are the folks at comcast they're going over the books for universal parks and resorts universal parks and resorts supposedly spent 170 million dollars to turn the merlin wood section of universal's island's venture lost continent area into the the original wizarding world of harry potter they took this 20 acre chunk of land and turned it into a theme park within a theme park and Universal Parks and Resorts loves to do stuff like this. They call the Wizarding World a, a theme park within a theme park rather than just a new land in of Adventure. This is also why Volcano Bay isn't a water park. It's a water theme park. Since the folks at Universal Creative do such nice work, and if it weren't for the Wizarding World or Harry Potter, do you think Walt Disney Imagineering would have ever been compelled to up its game and do Pandora the World of Avatar or or be working now on Star Wars
1: Galaxy's Edge? Absolutely not. We had seen in 2008, 2009, with all the D23 announcements, it was the new Fantasyland way of doing things. It was, we're going to do a land. There's going to be a a dark ride. There may be a, a thrill feature, but it was all based around... The characters and a lot of overlays. Mm -hmm. I don't know if we would have gotten Avatar, and we definitely would have gotten, would not have gotten Star Wars for sure. Back in the day, I can
0: remember Disney was the first one to be having the conversations with Ms. Rowling. And I've always found it kind of ironic that basically, we're in New Fantasyland right now. You kind of have that, you know, when you go down into the Dumbo Circus area and you hang the left and kind of go over to where the Little Mermaid is, you know, the meet and greet and all that. This was actually where Disney was talking about building a Harry Potter Miniland. Mm-hmm. This was tiny, itty bitty. There were two attractions. There was going to be a, basically it was going to be Buzz Lightyear. You were going to be in an Omni Mover attraction with a wand instead of a gun, and you were moving through basically a dark arts teaching class. The other aspect was going to be a care of magical creatures petting zoo, Disney, doing things in response to what Universal had done. Do you remember the Triceratops encounter the Jurassic Park used to have? Oh, absolutely. Okay, so picture that only when you go into the room instead of a several-ton Triceratops, it was a hippogriff. You'd have to walk up to the hippogriff and bow, and it would bow to you, and you could pet it. (laughs) And then it was going to be a teeny tiny quick service restaurant that was basically going to be sort of the leaky cauldron quick service disney wanted to do something small and ms Rowling was not impressed that's why eventually it ended up the street you know the street so they let potter get away Mm -hmm. but in the end it was potter that ultimately forced disney's board of directors to to open up that wallet and build these truly immersive lands that we see today. So that for me, that's why, okay, you want me to call the Wizarding World a theme park with a theme park? I'll do that. You want me to call Volcano Bay a water theme park? Sure. It, whatever it takes to sort of nudge Disney in the butt and to get them to step up their game. Mm-hmm. Anyway, back to the, the bookkeeping story. So anyway, here are the folks at Comcast. And they're going over Universal's books back in the fall of 2010. And the executives of comcast supposedly discovered at that time that universal parks and resort had recovered the full cost of building the original wizarding world at Islands adventure in just five months time dustin and the bulk of that money was supposedly recovered from
1: the sale of butterbeer i'm not going to say that i have spent too much money on butterbeer mm. but I think anyone who has been to that land, mm-hmm. you have a checklist of things that you need to get. And one of them is a butter beer. Mm-hmm. And if it's at $7 or $3 or whatever the price is, that makes sense. Now, we had talked about this um, before we started to record about the Flavor Lab and everything that goes on within the theme parks. There's always a column response as soon as one organization does. Now,
0: just to be clear here, we're talking about Disney's Flavor Lab. Those are the folks yes. who do the, the food and the beverage for the Disney parks and resorts.
1: All these organizations have their own ways of creating new things to sell. And one of them is, is Disney's Flavor Lab. And they've been coming up with something that may be, you know, coming to Star Wars Galaxy's Edge, which is the blue milk. Now, they want to make sure that this new land, or should I say, you know, theme park within a theme park at Disney's Hollywood Studios. Um, and Getting
0: you properly trained here. Carry on. I
1: have to do it. It's... It's it's one of those funny things with our podcast. There's almost like a, a bingo. You have to do theme park within a theme park. We have to talk about guest experiences and all the, the funny stuff. And, immersive. You know, Don't theme- forget immersive. Oh, it's all about the immersive. Okay. So why wouldn't they want to get blue milk, mm-hmm. which is going to be huge on everything? You know, that just makes sense. You want to get it right. They want their
0: butterbeer. But if you look at that whole slew of Navi inspired cuisine that the Flavor Lab put together for Pandora. I realize it only opened back in, in May of 2017. But have you heard of anything that's really broken out from that place? I mean, you know, that must have food that you gotta
1: have when you're you're at Disney's Animal Kingdom walking around Pandora? Pandora was always a catch twenty two because everything that was there was good quality. Mm-hmm. And I believe this this came up on a, a recent Disney dish with you and Len. Mm-hmm. You were talking about what has changed. Mm-hmm. And nothing on that menu has actually evolved since they opened, which could either be a really good thing mm-hmm. or it could be the fact that there's no new ideas. I don't think that that's the case. I think that it's all working. Mm-hmm. And especially with the drink that comes to mind is the Night Blossom. Mm-hmm. So that was the the colored slushy with the, the boba balls on top. But yeah, you're completely right. Okay.
0: But on the other hand, while we
1: don't have a breakout food item, that's not the case on the merch side, right? Absolutely. When Pandora opened up, mm-hmm. the big get were the Banshees. Mm-hmm. So you can buy them at Wind Traders. Mm-hmm. And when you go in, they right on the left hand side, they have the adoption area where you're able to adopt a Banshee and, you know, it sits on your shoulder and they sell little things, little add ons that you can buy for your desk or that kind of thing. But when they first came out, Mm -hmm. they sold out. There was nothing that they had seen up to that point that made it so, you know, people were waiting in line at a store for rope drop they started with a much lower price point right yeah it was 49.95 which was reasonable 50 bucks but you know when you looked at it as soon as they started to see the dollars coming in they're like oh we can we can charge more Mm -hmm. so they bumped it up to to 60 so now if you wanted to go on to shop disney and see what the official souvenir of pandora the world of avatar which Frankly, it is. It'll cost you $85. Yeah.
0: And again, just to sort of put this in perspective, folks, I remember we started the show. We were talking about two ticket prizes within, what, seven months or the rise of parking at Disney from 20 to 25 and and what, since February? But here, you know, Pandora has only been open 17 months, and so we've watched the the Banshees going to go from $49 to 60 to now 84 or excuse me, as you said, 85
1: Absolutely, and then when you're looking at the newest craze, which is shop, the Shop Disney app, because mm-hmm. previously when, when I was working at Disney, you had to call down and actually order something if you saw uh, an item a t-shirt or such in a store you had to call down and someone had to go and get that item put it in a box and then send it out well now with this mentality of having your app open and being like oh i need to get a 2018 2019 like a dated piece of merchandise you can get that from your phone Mm. well they're starting to do more retail deals And you can get free shipping on any order over $75 or more. Mm -hmm. So that's a bonus. (laughs) It is. It is. But
0: uh, I don't know. I feel like we've talked about way too much about rising prices and money on this episode of Universal Giant. How about this? Once we get back from our commercial break, I want to talk about something other than money, okay? What about mooses? Mooses it is then. We'll be right back. And we're back. Dustin and I may seem to have complained a lot about rising costs of going to Walt Disney World or Universal Orlando on this podcast. But that doesn't mean that he and I are actually going to stop going to Florida. And why would that be, Dustin?
1: Because I live in in Canada. And and I live in New Hampshire, which which is almost Canada. And to be blunt, we're cold. Uh, (laughs) This past week, um, actually, just looking at the weather... Uh, it is currently 45, feeling like 40 outside. That's And I did a very good thing, and I even ch- uh, changed Celsius over to Fahrenheit just for you. I do appreciate that.
0: On the other hand, myself and, you know, here just this past Thursday, Nancy and I woke up to find snow out on our deck. It's the very first snow of the season. Fell on the 18th of October, which I have to tell you both thrilled and horrified. My daughter Alice, who's out visiting with us from Southern California.
1: Oh, she got to see snow. That's incredible. It's so nice when... no,
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah that, that's, in theory, it's a wonderful thing.
1: Yeah, but as cold as it is right now up here in Canada and uh, southern New Hampshire, it's, it's positively balmy compared to what the poor folks in Frostbite Falls, Minnesota, have been dealing with. Frostbite Falls, of course, is where Rocket J. Squirrel and Bullwinkle J.
0: Moose live. They were the stars of Rocky and Friends, that much beloved animated series that originally debuted on ABC back in November of 59. So, oh, that
1: means 60th anniversary next year. Cool. Yeah. And the reason why so many baby boovers actually associate Disney and Bullwinkle Moose with Mickey Mouse is because when Rocky and his friends moved to NBC in September of uh, 1961, which is the network that used to air episodes of the animated series on, on Sunday nights at seven, that was actually the time slot just before Walt Disney's wonderful world of color, the the TV series used to run.
0: Yep. And one of the other reasons that baby boomers so loved it and continue to love Bullwinkle is because this show made fun of any topic. Take, for example, That installment of Fractured Fairy Tales, by the way, Fractured Fairy Tales was one of the many components that made up your typical episode of Rocky and his friends. Among the others were Aesop and Son, Peabody's Improbable History, and Mr. Know-It-All. Anyway, if you want to see something that truly savages the founder of the Walt Disney Company, you have to go on YouTube right now and seek out the Fractured Fairy Tale version of Sleeping Beauty. There you'll get to see Jay Ward completely skewer Walt Disney This huckster who keeps telling people who are visiting his brand new theme park, Sleeping Beautyland, uh, to be sure to pull out your X coupon, your Y coupon, your Z coupon, which of course is a riff on the A through E tickets that guests used to use whenever they visited Disneyland Park.
1: Yeah, and and it's funny going back in time and realizing that that's the way that the theme park industry worked, Mm -hmm. but I love these little glimpses into the history. and. You know, since Rocky and his friends, and later, obviously, the Bullwinkle show, because they knew who who was the the star of the show, obviously. It's all about the moose. They often made fun of Walt Disney. and I'm Well, sorry. no, no, no. You wouldn't think that, you know, I
0: mean, again, a show that makes fun of, of Walt Disney that, conversely, Disney fans would be enthusiastic about. Rock and Bull and Google, but that really wasn't the case, right?
1: Absolutely, and the the opposite was true. Actually, it's uh, Bill Mechanic, who was the head of Buena Vista Home Video at this point in time, was the arm of the Walt Disney Company that distributed many of the the studio's movies on VHS. Now, VHS kids <laughs> is that little thing that collects dust on the bookshelf behind you.
0: I don't know if you've been to your local Disney store lately. You walk into the store and you look at that's an old vhs box and it's like no it's a purse or it's a notebook i mean they took the bold graphics that the vhs is that we all have sitting on shelves that we never watch because Stu watches a vhs anymore i mean it's right down to the white packaging which is now the outside of the purse or the outside of the notebook.
1: People are buying nostalgic. That's just the way that it works. And it's, it's all the ones that we love. Mm -hmm. So it's the classic beauty and the beast, little mermaid that just makes sense. And for, for a number of years, we've seen the Etsy culture, which is these, the people that go around and find new uses for things that we still find uh, or have a fondness for that's something that's coming back. And, I love the fact that we're able to talk about Rocky and Bullwinkle Mm -hmm. and people know what it's about because they've seen YouTube and they've seen these these things. But back, back to the story, which I just find absolutely incredible. So in a May 1989 interview with The New York Times, Mechanic, so Bill Mechanic, said that he thought that Rocky and Bullwinkle is probably the last major piece of television yet to be exploited. He adds... It's a product that I've been trying to get for nine years. Huh, that's interesting. In the end, so what what happened was the Walt Disney Company's home video division had to pay Jay Ward Productions roughly a million dollars. But after they cut that check, they got the rights for all of the 156 episodes of of the Bullwinkle programs that were – already completed everything was good they got those rights in 1989.
0: Mechanic cuts his steel in May of 1989 and The Little Mermaid which is the very first of the new Disney animated features the the first one to really break through to sort of connect in a movie with the movie republic and to really do well with its retail program and sort of thing so but that's not out in theaters till November of that same year so this is why the Walt Disney Company has big plans for Winkle What they're going to do is take this 156 episodes that they just required the, the VHS distribution rights for, and they're then going to leverage them across the entire company.
1: Just so everyone knows, leverage is another one of the bingo there we go. things, as is syndicated. Mm-hmm. So when we were talking about Disney uh, television animation mm-hmm. and, you know, adding something on the scale of a Rocky and Bullwinkle would be incredible because that will be presented as part of the Disney afternoon. Yeah. And back in those days, incredible stuff. Well, just
0: this past summer when I was out in Ohio doing the Dayton Disney Anna event, I was like mm-hmm. oh, the other guests that were speakers at this thing were Mike Peraza and his lovely wife, Patty. And Mike, as it turns out, actually worked on the, the, what they, I guess they were calling the all new adventures of Rocky and Bullwinkle. That he's there working at Disney Television Animation, and he was part of the team that was putting together this new series that was supposed to go out, I guess. Well, you know the programming block, though, the one that, you know, they had DuckTales, they had Tailspin. Didn't they bring in Gummy Bears too at one point or? something like that
1: yeah they it was basically all of the 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 classic cartoons Mm. that we still love to this day that you know you can find on many of the shelves of nostalgic t-shirts and such but yeah absolutely it was a tv block that in my opinion Mm. actually rivals the abc's um tgif
0: and but but wait, it gets better. It wasn't just television animation that was planning on doing things with Rocky and Bullwinkle. The Imagineers, there were these plans to bring Rocky and Bullwinkle into the Disney theme parks. We're talking rides,
1: we're talking shows, we're talking attractions. This is the, the Disney company that, that likes to design things before they actually have signed on the dotted paper so what's funny is that at this point in time the walt disney company actually didn't have the theme park rights to the rocky and bullwinkle characters all that they had done was purchased the that 1 million dollars for the 156 episodes what they also didn't do was secure the rights to produce any of the uh, the brand new animated series featuring any of the characters that Jay Ward had created. So they figured that as soon as Jay himself uh, unfortunately passed away in October of 89, they figured that they'd be able to go back to the Ward family and offer them the same type of money to either continue or to all out buy the entire catalog. They
0: got the rights to that 156 episodes, and again, this is just the VHS distribution rights for a million dollars. And the thinking was that Disney could go back and for the same relatively small fee, get theme park rights and merchandising rights and the ability to make a new series of, of Rocky and Bulligan animated cartoons. But that very same year, 1989, in fact, you know, in August of that same same year, here's the Walt Disney Company cutting a deal with the Jim Henson Company. They didn't know they had The Little Mermaid coming. They were worried about getting characters for the park. So, and Michael Eisner was this huge fan of The Muppets, and he wanted Jim Henson to be making movies for for Disney and making television shows. So you know, Eisner on, honestly thought that Jim Henson was the next Walt Disney, so he wanted him in Disney thing. But to get Jim Henson to sign over his characters in his movies and that sort of thing, Eisner offered him... North of $150 million. All right. So million dollars for the Jay Ward characters versus $150 million for the Muppets. That's kind of a sticker shock thing, don't you think?
1: A little bit. And when we're looking at it, the fact that Disney had the VHS rights mm-hmm. for all of those episodes. And weren't they... Heavily, you know, out there, the the VHS. What was it? The top ten. You were telling me this fact. I, uh, I'm very interested in it.
0: So they put out the first six. Uh, you know, the Adventures of Rocky and Bullwinkle. They go out on VHS, and these are a huge success in 1990, folks. At one point, in the, in the top ten selling videos in the the North American market, five of these top sellers are the Adventures of Rocky and Bullwinkle. So Disney's like, oh man, we made a smart choice. We have to get these in the park. We have to get the merchandising rights. And somehow Universal learns what Disney's planning. And someone at Universal figures out, wait a minute, they don't actually have the theme park rights. So what do they do, Dustin?
1: Well, we've actually seen this through the show itself. Mm-hmm. So they borrowed a page from Boris Badenov and swooped in. And in June of 1991, they acquired the theme park rights as well as the worldwide merchandising rights to the Rocky and Bullwinkle characters right out from under Disney's nose.
0: this was entirely personal. Okay, Jay Stein and Sid Sheinberg, the gentlemen who were in charge of MCA's recreation department, sorry, the the MCA's recreation department was what Universal called the, the arm of its company that was in charge of parks and resorts back in the late 80s, early 90s. Jay and Sid were still ticked off at Michael Eisner for supposedly swiping many of the original concepts for universal city, Florida. That's what the universal Orlando resort was originally called and taking many right ideas, many show ideas and, and plugging those straight into Disney MGM studio theme park. So, so to be able to, to slip in and to, to swipe these Jay Ward characters right out from under Disney, especially after the Imagineers and Disney television animation had Crafted such elaborate plans for Rocky and Bullwinkle. For Sid and Jay, this was just, this was such a sweet
1: bit of revenge. And it's really funny, Mm -hmm. especially when you're looking at the fact that that's just the way the business works. And we're seeing it right now with Universal Islands of Adventure. Mm -hmm. And when you walk around IOA, there are some interesting uh, lands that show up, Mm -hmm. and there's Marvel Superhero Island, and as you're walking through, you're going to see just past it, the the next in Cartoon Lagoon is Dudley Do-Right's Ripsaw Falls attraction. Yeah.
0: You know, if you look further out from there, Disney did retain some rights. I mean, for example, George of the Jungle, the Brendan Fraser movie that came out, I want to say, in 97? That was a J-Word property, and that, that eventually came out from uh, Disney, and in fact, in a weird little bend on the story here, at one point, Disney was going to take the Jungle Cruise, and mm-hmm. w- they were going to retheme the entire Jungle Cruise to George of the Jungle Cruise. I remember seeing some concept art. There's always that joke of you're going through the, the sacred bathing pool of the elephants. Well, for the George of the Jungle version, the whole, they've got their trunks on, They'd have their trunks on. <laughs> you know, it would have been very cool. But on the other hand, Universal was Snow was Piker. They brought the characters into their parks, or at least for a short time. And you know, in in fact, I am I'm, I'm putting our quest out, folks, because I got to see this show once in ninety two. It was called The Adventures of Rocky and Bullwinkle. It was basically a streetmosphere show that was done at Universal Studios, Florida. But what was really cool about it is that the way the show started is that, you know, you're walking around, you know, the New York Street area of that theme park, and this bright red biplane, you know, suddenly is rolling up the street. And, you know, it's, it's very cartoony, very Jay Ward-like. And then it finally comes to a stop, the propeller stops moving, and who steps out but Rocky and Boeingle, and they've supposedly flown in from Frostbite Falls. And I always hope that when I go to YouTube and, you know, and I type in just the right words, I'm going to get to see something again. And so far, I have not hit that magic combination of words. So if anybody out there has photos or or video from the show, we'd we'd love if you, you could share it and we could then maybe pass it along to the other folks who listen to the Universal Joint Podcast. But I guess we'll have to save that for a future show. Speaking to the future, Dustin, if, if somebody, you know, next week or thereabouts is waiting for us to do another show, but wants some more of your insights, where can they go online to find those?
1: For anything that I'm working on, it's usually over at steps to magic.com. There's uh plenty of universal Disney trip planning stuff. Lots of stuff over on Pinterest. So I'm I'm heavily into the the Pinterest culture, especially when you're dealing with with trip planning, you want to be able to remember what you want to do while you're actually in the theme parks. So I'm over there. I'm also, you know, a little bit on Twitter here and there. But my big thing is just there's so much news. There's so much stuff that's coming out of the next little bit that it's it's all about keeping my opinion, you know, just keep downloading all the the new podcasts that are coming out from the jim hill media network it's it's crazy
0: stuff okay hang on i could sorry folks i have to slip him a 20 for that shameless plug let's see i have to mention but i do the disney dish with lontesta i do looking at lucasfilm with dan z i do mm-hmm. the fine tuning with drew taylor i also do marvel us disney with the amazing aaron adams and of course the show you're listening to now folks The Universal Joint with Dustin Fuse Which again I hope you liked And we're going to try to be back within The next two weeks with another Brand new episode so Hang in there and Watch me pull a rabbit out of my hat That trick never works It's been Groovy having you hang with us For The Universal Joint Tune in again for this and other
1: Great podcasts found On the Jim Hill Media Network